We're in a series in the second week called On the Road with Jesus. And so as we continue this series, let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love. We thank you that you have called us here together by your Spirit to hear from you, to be changed by you, to enjoy your goodness, your love, your peace. And so that we can go out into the world around us and share that peace and love and joy of those around us. We pray that as we hear your word this morning, you'd lift up our eyes to you and to help us how to live and continue following you, your son, on this road. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Last week, we saw what motivates us to join Jesus on the road towards Jerusalem or on the road towards the new creation. We saw not only the, the positive benefits, but also the consequences of what happens when we refuse such an invitation. But also we saw the benefits in that we want to join Jesus because the destination is going to be so glorious, the kingdom of God, the place where we get to feast and experience joy and life and hope for all eternity. We looked at the idea that Jesus invites the disciples to journey with him along this road towards Jerusalem, and he invites us to journey with him towards the new creation to bring about his kingdom. And so in the meantime, though he invites us to become disciples, we are to be his apprentices, his followers, as we, as we look forward to the day where his kingdom will come and we'll have this destination arrive finally. Now, this morning, we're going to look at what motivates Jesus to go on this journey in the first place. Why is he heading along the road towards Jerusalem? And what is motivating him to come back to make all things new? It's not long after the warnings he gives in last week's passage that the Pharisees come to Jesus with their own warning to Jesus. They say to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Isn't that kind of the Pharisees to let Jesus know that? The opposition wants to kill him and to get rid of him. Do you think they're just being friendly here at this point? No. They're trying to deter Jesus from fulfilling his mission, from going on this journey. They're trying to make him to back off, to retreat, to hide, so Jesus would no longer have the influence that he was gaining from this journey. But the question arises, what will Jesus do with this information? Will he listen to the wisdom of man? And retreat and back off? Or will he steadfast continue on this journey even though it might cost him his life? He replies, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I must finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way. Jesus is determined to not let anything stop him from taking this journey and fulfilling his mission, mission. And the motivation for this arises out of what he says in this passage. There are two things here. So firstly, we see that he is motivated by the necessity to save our world. Even though there's a potential threat of death, Jesus is motivated by the fact that it, he must go. It's necessary for him because only he can save the world. But why is it necessary for him to this journey? Why must he do it? We get an idea from the kind of work that he's been doing along the way. In verse 32, we read that Jesus has been casting out demons and healing the sick, that this is the work that he must continue on doing. It's interesting, he never says in this, in this little passage here that his work is to preach the gospel, to share the good news. 
Now, no doubt, they are of high importance, as important as casting out demons and healing the sick. But the reason why he doesn't say that here in this passage is because he wants people to see just how severe the problem is that he has come to fix. The forces that we are up against are literally able to enslave our body and our mind. They are the ones that are responsible for the decay and the breakdown of the world around us, our bodies and environments, responsible for death itself. That's what we're up against. And we call this the power of sin and death. Now, for the Pharisees and many Jews, they saw their problem as one of political oppression. They were oppressed by Rome, and they were awaiting the long-awaited Messiah to come and to rescue them from this conflict, from this oppression, and to restore the temple once more, the place of worship, to bring about God's king once more, and to restore Israel in the process. Their vision was a political one, freedom from Rome and their oppression. But Jesus here is saying, no, 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 no. The problem runs much deeper, much, much deeper than that. His journey is not simply to resolve the problem of political oppression represented by Rome. His journey is to resolve the problem of cosmic oppression represented by the powers of sin and death seen in demonic oppression and sickness as well. Back in Luke 4, Jesus, reading the scroll of Isaiah, says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we see throughout all of Jesus' ministry, people come to him with all kinds of sickness and disease. People come to him with all kinds of demonic oppression and spirits being enslaving them. And what does Jesus do? He brings them freedom. He brings them life. He restores their bodies, bringing peace. Jesus' work shows there is a real spiritual and evil power at work against us. And only He, in coming to Him, only He can defeat it. And that's why He has come. Of course, in our sensible modern world, we have moved beyond this, of course. We've away from looking at our world through a superstitious lens. Any problem we see, the decay, the brokenness, isn't because of some kind of supernatural evil. It's because our world is just a malfunctioning. There's a bug in the system, so to speak. We might look at the brokenness and decay of the world around us today and blame it on a lack of education or a lack of technology or a lack of scientific discovery. And all we need to do to fix things is just progress, advance, learn more, understand our world better, and then everything will be perfect. We'll just slowly glide into utopia. Right? Is that actually true? We're the wealthiest we've ever been in society. We're the healthiest we've ever been. We have more opportunity in our world today, in this generation, than any other past generation. We're literally living in paradise on the northern beaches, where every weekend you can go down for a swim at Manly Beach in the morning, and afterwards you can come and sit in a cafe and sip on the finest lattes that Manly has to offer, beans from Colombia, North Africa, and wherever they're found. You can read the news on your iPhone. Be connected to the world around you. 
We're living the secular utopian dream here on the northern beaches. And yet, whilst we are living that dream, you can be sitting in the cafe and you can be still racked with anxiety and depression. You can own the home, have the car, have the job, have the family, have children who you love, and yet you can look at your future with no hope. You can have all these things. If that's not evidence that we are have a greater spiritual force working against us, seeking to enslave us, seeking to destroy us and rob us, rob us of our life. I don't know what is evidence for that. It was C.S. Lewis that said the greatest lie the devil ever told was to convince the Western world that he doesn't exist. And so in successfully making that lie, he gets all the benefits, a destroyed world and none of the blame. We end up just blaming each other. Our world is oppressed by a force we cannot win against. This is why Jesus must, he must go on this way because only he can deal with this problem. He must go to Jerusalem because it is only he who can bring the freedom and life to those under the oppression of sin and death. And this Work that he is doing to bring such freedom in life will culminate in what has to happen in Jerusalem, which we find out is that he has to die. Verse 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Throughout his journey, his work has been to confront sickness, to confront sickness and disease and and demon possession, and to overcome it by bringing life and healing to these people. But the stark irony is that in, at his final destination, in, in the moment where he is to, his life-giving work will culminate, he will give his life instead. Why? The hint is in how Jesus describes himself as a prophet, alluding again to Isaiah's prophecy, fulfilling the idea that Jesus is a sent messenger, to the Jewish people. He is a divinely sent messenger and he becomes the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, we, we read that this servant will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities and upon him will be the chastisement that, bring, that brings us peace. And by his wounds, we will be healed. Somehow, Jesus will take on the very thing that he has sought to destroy and get rid of. He will die, but his death will not be the end of him. Rather, his death will begin the end of death itself and the end of sin's power and oppression over our world. This has been the plan since the beginning. And now Jesus is here and everything has been set in motion, and nothing is going to stop him from achieving this mission. He will go on his way. He will continue to heal. He will continue to cast out demons to show this is what I've come to do, to free this world from oppression. And he will get to Jerusalem, and his work will culminate there through his death and resurrection. The good news is, is that if we are someone here this morning who is feeling the decay and the brokenness so acutely in our life, if you're someone who feels so uncertain about your future, then the good news is that Jesus has come to rescue you from the power of evil, the power of sin and death, to bring forgiveness where you have failed and to bring you eternal life where our world, oppressed by sin, has robbed us of that life. 
Unlike the paradise of our secular world, Jesus provides a way to live in a world with pain and suffering, but with great hope. Great hope that Jesus will make all things new and he will not be deterred from fulfilling his mission. He calls us to follow him because we, he is the only one who can save this world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that he is motivated by love for our world. Jesus goes from talking to the Pharisees and responding to them to making a prophetic announcement about Jerusalem itself. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. If Jesus were in Australia, I don't think he'd be saying, Canberra, Canberra. You know, Canberra is not really the place where the zeitgeist of secularism kind of flows out from. It's more likely he would be like, Sydney, Sydney, or Melbourne, Melbourne. These are the places where secularism is having its cultural moment. But he chooses Jerusalem for the same reason we might choose Sydney and Melbourne. It's because at whatever flows out of Jerusalem is going to flow out of the rest of Israel. And so he makes his critique at Jerusalem because it represents the heart of God's people. It represents Israel and how all of God's people will respond. And he says they are known for killing God's prophets. Yet even though they're known for that, it's God's desire to love and protect his people. He says, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus draws upon language using the Psalms and the prophets, language familiar to the people of God back then. They would have known this about who God is. He uses that language to say how we have longed to love you and protect you, how God has longed to desire to hold you. Like how a mother cradles her newborn baby protecting this baby from all the elements, the dangers outside, warm in her, in her mother's arms. Apart from her mother, the baby is vulnerable, unprotected, left to the dangers surrounding them, but in her mother's arms, she is safe. This is the way God wants to love his people and protect them. And in a sense, we see this idea that God has tried time and time again to do this. He says, how I've longed to hold you. But when we read, you were not willing. The prophets of the Old Testament warned the kings of Israel and Judah time and time again to turn back to God, to live his way and to enjoy his protection and love. But when they refused his protection and love, they would be invaded and they would suffer greatly for that. They would then cry out to God, realizing what they had done was wrong. God would send someone to protect them, to save them. And then they would come back to God and things would be good for a little while. But sooner than later, the people of God would forget. They would refuse God's love and protection. They would live their own way and the cycle would start again and again and again until it led to the exile into Babylon. And we see that cycle repeated here right now. God's people are back in the land. They are oppressed. And when someone has come to talk about the salvation that God is going to bring to them, the religious leaders still refuse that love and protection. The Pharisees still don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. And that will result... In a crowd forming 
before Pilate, yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, to the one God had sent. Not only a divine messenger, but God's own son. They refused his love and protection. They didn't think they needed it. And so Jesus makes a prophetic announcement over, these, over them all. He says to the Pharisees and the Jews, your house is left to you desolate. In other words, you are in peril. You are vulnerable. You have no protection. Your traditions won't save you. The fact that you have the law and the promises, that won't save you. The fact that you're a Jew and you're born in the line of Abraham, that won't save you. Because all those things, they point to me as the one who will save you. And you have rejected my love and my protection. You don't want anything to do with me. And that house, your house, will be left empty. You will be in peril for as long until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until they accept Jesus as their deliverer, they won't be saved. And this raises the question for us. What are you building your life upon to save you or to give you hope? We can be so easily blinded for the promises of security and comfort in this modern world to preserve our life and to make us feel less vulnerable to the bad things happening around us. We've already talked about this a little bit. We live in the most affluent city in the world, full of prosperity and and, and promise, opportunity. We live in one of the most safest cities in the world where crime is just an all-time low and gun crime barely heard of. I've never seen a gun on someone except a police officer here in Sydney. Go to America, it's a whole different story. We live in the most beautiful city in the world. The most beautiful city in the world where so many people come and check it out all from all over the world, what is otherwise our own backyard. And so typically speaking, we don't know what it's like to feel unsafe. We don't know what it's like to not have enough. We don't know what it's like to not enjoy life, typically speaking. And so in the same way, the Pharisees and religious leaders built their life on all their laws and traditions, thinking all these things would give them security for their future. We can add all these things up and think all these things give us security and hope for our future. Building our life on these things. And the scary thing is we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't even realize that we are putting our trust and faith and hope in these things. And so you can imagine Jesus saying to modern-day Sydney-siders, Sydney, Sydney, you have rejected my messengers and my people. You have you who revel in your own beauty and pleasure, who draw comfort and security from your big houses and driving nice cars. See, behold, you are vulnerable, for death will surely come, and it will take everything away from you, robbing you of everything that you enjoy in life. And judgment will come, for you have rejected my love and my protection. Those living in a city like Sydney gives the illusion of protection, prosperity, hope, and life. Against the power of sin and death, we are desolate, vulnerable, and in peril. We have been so deceived by this foreign power that has enslaved us that we think that we are stronger than we are, that we can look after ourselves in this world, that we're safe in this big city we've built. When the fact is, no, we are more vulnerable 
than we've ever been if we choose to live life without God. So what are you building your life upon? Your career? Your family? Your wealth? Your marriage? Kids? Your comforts? Things that will fade away. Or are you building your life on following Jesus, becoming his apprentice, learning to do life his way, with a great anticipation of what is to come, the destination that is the kingdom of God, filled with hope and life and peace and joy. The good news is that God is not simply doing this out of necessity, but a strong love for you and me. He wants to hold on to you and protect you and love you. And so that to do that, He invites us to journey with Him. If we want to experience the great protection and love of God in this life, we must go with Jesus on this journey and learn His way of life, following Him, trusting in Him that He will bring us to that destination. When we make our lives about following Jesus, we're building on a life on a solid ground with a sure hope. A house that would not be left desolate, but one that will experience the love and protection of God. And what's incredible about following Jesus is it's not about trying really hard to be good, or really hard to attend church every single week, or trying really hard to serve everything you've got. All these things are really good things, and I encourage you to be here every week at church. I encourage you to serve, and I encourage you to grow in holiness because we are all on a journey with Jesus, I hope, wanting to be more like Him. And these things are there so to help you and to encourage you along the way. But all these things are to point to Jesus, and the most important thing is to follow Him, to trust in Him and what He has done for you. And the good news is that therefore at the heart of what we're trying to do as Christians is to trust in Him. So every moment and every day, we can say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When you stuff up and when you sin, when you failed, you don't despair. You say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord and forgives me of my sin. When you lose your job, or you're experiencing great financial difficulty, you say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, who protects me and who saves me. When you or a loved one gets ill and sick, you say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When you're on your deathbed and you're afraid because death is a scary thing, you say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be my Savior, my Deliverer, in whom I have hope for my life, who protects me and loves me and will bring me into this kingdom. This is what we must build our life on, the love of God in Jesus Christ, who came to save us from the power of sin because only He can do so, and to give us hope and life for all eternity where we'll experience His love and joy with Him and His kingdom. So, as you go out your days, every morning, every evening, in the hard, in the good, in the highs and the lows, always say to yourself, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.